0: running backwards episode one preamble (laughs) this isn't the book i wanted to write that would have been a bloody masterpiece had i persevered beyond the first ten pages i once showed them all ten of them to a literary agent via a friend's cousin of course who advised me, politely but emphatically, to fuck off. She was gracious in her dismissal. It didn't resonate with her stylistically, or some old bollocks, but it boils down to the same thing. Thanks but no thanks. I tried telling my friend to tell his cousin to tell the literary agent that it didn't bloody well matter if she didn't bloody well like it, because there were definitely tens of thousands of discerning readers out there who bloody well would. I have to admit that I raged somewhat that one person's unsophisticated palate should be the impassable bottleneck between my imagination and the nice four-bedroom house on Telegraph Lane it so richly deserved. I now fully condone my friend's refusal to communicate any of that nonsense to the poor woman. Suffice it to say, my masterpiece still amounts to just ten pages, and is a long way from blossoming into whatever it was going to be. A dreary existential treatise on the irreconcilable conflict between the desire for solitude and the need for love, or some shit like that. Something which looks clever, but has no actual relevance to anyone who isn't sitting around with their head up their own arse. Something only Terence Malick would attempt to turn into a movie which nobody would then attempt to go and see. I should also report that my friend quickly repositioned himself as an intermittent email acquaintance and eventually dwindled into a name I briefly hesitated to delete from my contacts. And that's fair enough. Who needs friends? Interestingly, and I suppose this is where the preamble should really begin, I do now have a literary agent. I'm not sure if the possessive have is appropriate. I predict that in retrospect, ownership will be seen in reverse, and it will transpire that it was me who was had. For the moment, however, the greedy, salivating shitbag is my only lifeline, and I must endure him. Beyond the contractually convoluted allowance he is gradually issuing to me in slim envelopes, addressed to a series of prearranged arranged nom nom-the-plumes, Staying at such-and-such a cut-price off-season sub-travelodge purgatory of damp sheets and mildew, normally in one of those counties you've heard of but couldn't point to on a map, he also does me the favour of never venturing far from his spicy little office in Camden, which allows me to be absolutely nowhere near him most of the time. He really is awful. He's going to read this, of course and I fully intend that my portrait of him will depict, without compromise, a fetid parody of humanity who feeds at the piss, blood, and tear-filled trough of despair and grows fat and happy on the meal. I'll give you a quick flavour. Mark Barry, literary agent, has a favourite anecdote. It goes thus... So I'm in fucking days, you know, days off East Street with all the neon fucking shit oh, you know, but that's where all the fucking slugs go. I tell you, if you've got a credit card, you're like, fucking can you walking in there like they've seen this fucking mythical being a fucking grown-up with some actual fucking liquidity rather than the usual scummy cock-ends peeling out fibres got selling skunk to them fucking tramps by the bridge. So, I'm there with Gary, uh, what's his fucking face, Green Summy with his beard. And he's the bastard, right, who signed that fucking woman with the leg. You remember that? The withered leg woman said she'd been dogging with the Queen's private secretary. Turned out to be fucking bullshit, but she was the talkative kind of mental, and that had value till Gary fucking Green muscled his way in. But all's fair, love and war and all that wank. So I have got this girl on the go and she's totally loving me because I bought her a fucking parody and she's sucking me off, right? And, you know, squirt, thank you very much, love, move the fuck on, but she's all fucking clingy, right? And she gets in her right hunt because I won't snog her no more, but you know, you've got a mouthful of my fucking jizz, so I'll pass if it's all the same. And it's literally three minutes later, I look over, And she's in the middle of the fucking floor, and there's Gary Green with his hand up her shirt and his tongue down her fucking throat. And I'm just creasing up, mate. And then he pulls back, and he's got this fucking look on his face like there's something he can't quite put his finger on. And I swear to God, he licks his fucking lips and he goes back for more, the dirty fucking bastards. And the best bit, and this fucking serves him right, I had a rare old case of fucking thrush at the time. Cheesy bonnet and everything. So God only knows what state his fucking mouth was in after that. Drinking a lot of fucking yogurt, I reckon. What a cunt. I hate him. You'll understand why. But it happens to be my great misfortune that I need him. I have absolutely no doubt that I'll come to regret this association, but without the sticky-fingered duplicity of Mr. Mark Barry, there is a very good chance that I would be in serious trouble right now. Prison trouble. This memoir, or journal, or whatever the fuck kind of not-a-novel it's supposed to be, is effectively payment for my current, although probably temporary, liberty, and in writing it for him, I'm not earning my miserly allowance, I am buying his silence. Mark Barry knows that a young man died, and he knows that I killed him. September. I rode 157 miles today. September is my favorite month, The high heat of summer has just about buggered off which means I don't turn up everywhere with a river of sweat running down the back of my legs from its source on the upper slopes of my arse crack. The sun sits a little lower in the sky which makes everything look pretty, especially as the mornings begin to haze over. Riding west in the early evening is a fag though, as if motorbikes aren't scary enough Try doing 60 into the blinding glare of an autumn sunset. You're lucky if it's just the sweat stinking up your knickers. My bike is a pile of shit. It started life as a custom replica of an original 1959 T120 Triumph Bonneville, but I bought it fifth-hand, by which time it looked like something the Nazis had abandoned on the way home from Stalingrad. My project sat under a tarpaulin for a year whilst I slowly consented to the inevitability that somebody else would end up doing the work and I would have been better off investing my apathy in a nice comfy chair. Somebody else did do the work, at least enough to get it running reliably, but my budget ran out at the aesthetics phase and I rediscovered my love of motorcycling whilst sitting on a beautifully restored engine hung in the carcass of a rusty old dog. Unfortunately, you can't see the precision-bored cylinders from the outside. You just see the dog. I've been on the move for a month, acclimatising to the delights of this new, peripatetic lifestyle. It stopped pretending to be a holiday very quickly, with the discovery, in less than a week, that three-star living was beyond my means, Two nights were spent in an agony of frozen bones behind a cemetery wall in Wiltshire, occasionally running the bike just to recoup some warmth from the exhaust, whilst fighting the temptation to simply suck on the pipe and be done with it. I stole bread and beans from the spa in Alderbury so that I'd have enough money left for cigarettes previously i would have considered bread without butter an indignity but a sandwich of coal-baked beans spread with grubby fingers onto pilfered king's mill naturally sans butter and begrudgingly consumed during a battle between clamouring hunger and rising bile surely denotes a greater humiliation better budgeting was most definitely required and some semblance of planning wouldn't go amiss and so i collected my next scrawny envelope from the desk at the elms in bishop hill and dangled on the frayed end of their wi-fi for a few days systematically planning my route around this fine country it's hardly a grand tour in essence this is a soul-destroying join the dots marathon where the lines are distances of no more than two hundred miles and the dots are a series of crappy back-road B&Bs and moribund hotels, still traumatised by 70s decor. The route, however, is ingenious, circling within the fringes of the country for a couple of months before spiralling inwards and down towards Warwickshire, where I will finally surrender myself to destiny, on the very ground where blood was spilt i could of course on my own recognizance walk into any local police station and hand myself in but for two impediments firstly they don't seem to have local police stations any more probably because the tories misappropriated them along with public libraries and integrity and right now the nearest town of any size is burnley i might not be bonnie parker or indeed clyde barrow but there's no way my metaphorical hail of bullets is taking me down on the steps of some concrete municipal eyesore in fucking Burnley. The second reason is that I technically have no memory of committing the deadly act. Of course, I'm assured that I did. This would be a foolhardy expedition were it based on supposition rather than fact, but what I know of the incident originates from something other than conscious memory. Mark Barry is, fortunately I suppose, a consummate dung beetle, able to roll around in the world's ungodly crevices, slobbering and chattering and collecting the tastiest filth. In so doing, he managed to uncover the one piece of irrefutable evidence which has set me on my fated quest. The article is no more than two inches in length. All the space that was available, it seems, between the listings for second-hand garden furniture and Steve, who's got a van and will move stuff. Including second-hand garden furniture, one assumes, a pleasing 30-year redundant synchronicity. The Walthambury Advertiser burned down in 1992. I don't know if they had a sense of humour or were just demonstrating that bog-eyed indifference to irony suffered by the vocationally fatigued, but the tiny headline reads Body Found in Graveyard. It's extraordinary to me that the Wolfenberry Advertiser was the only news outlet to cover the story, but perhaps a dead student wasn't a major scoop next to reports that the ban on beef exports to Italy had finally been lifted 1992 was apparently pre-digital at least for the Wolfenberry advertiser and whatever archaic form of storage they used back then to archive their pre-ebay crapmart come local trivia chip wrapper was lost in the conflagration The article now only exists on a half page of faded newsprint which Mark Barry somehow acquired from a reclusive old weirdo in nearby Langley who'd been collecting the local papers since the 70s. Apparently she had erected huge stacks of them like battlements around her living room to the extent that she couldn't see the TV anymore or indeed reach it in order to switch it off consequently she'd had any lingering vestige of sanity tortured out of her by the unremitting sound of itv perhaps she took mark barry's query regarding dastardly deeds in the summer of nineteen ninety as vindication of her lifetime's work hopefully she'll die happy in the knowledge that fifty years of unwavering dedication and ceaseless endeavour turned out finally after so long be of slight use to one unpleasant man from London. More likely she'll just suffocate under a collapsed rampart and end up as a facile filler in the weekend edition. I have no idea how Mark Barry found the old dear, but in so doing he certified what I thought I already knew. The man I killed, and dumped at the bottom of a vacant grave, was called Patrick Byrne. He was twenty-one years old, and he was born in County Wicklow. That's in Ireland, by the way, and I have no hope whatsoever of pointing to it on a map, which perhaps illustrates how badly prepared I am to tell this story. It goes without saying that his name wasn't actually Patrick Byrne. The only real name I'm using here is Mark Barry, because he's a shit and deserves it. I'm not sure there's any logic in hiding Patrick's real name, but isn't that what they do? Or is that just the witnesses, rather than the victims? I've always turned the telly off as soon as some excessively masculine American growls out the words, "'The names have been changed to protect the innocent.'" Technically, the victim is innocent of killing themselves, so according to that disclaimer, shouldn't their name also be revised? Do they do that? Oh, fuck it. Who cares? We'll stick with Patrick. And if you're anything like as parochial as I am, you won't mind the excruciatingly idle stereotype. However, for the record, Patrick wasn't innocent. I mean, He was innocent with regard to being murdered, you can't fault him for that, but he was a repugnant individual who didn't deserve to die, but absolutely did deserve to spend a significant period of time in prison, just as soon as somebody with the appropriate jurisdiction found out what a perennial deviant he was. And I will speak ill of the dead, thank you very much, Hitler was a twat, Elvis was fat, Patrick Byrne was a creepy pervert. Sunday If you found an old ladder, propped it on the snaggle of broken paving beneath the murky picture window, climbed to the moss-littered roof, shimmied along the sagging ridge, hauled yourself up the teetering chimney and stretched onto your tippiest of toes on the rim of the crumbling pot. You still wouldn't be able to see the fucking sea from here. Mrs. Gunniver is a bastard liar. The front door of the Sea View Hotel was yanked open by a large elderly gentleman in uncomfortably descriptive cycling shorts. He was too old and weary to be angry but was far from happy that I'd interrupted whatever it was he was doing that smelled so bad. Cabbage was clearly involved. I introduced myself with today's pseudonym, Tim Cruz, and watched his face sag in on itself as he struggled to understand what on earth I might be doing at the door of his hotel, standing there with a rucksack over my shoulder right next to the sign announcing vacancies. He puffed out whisky fumes, and called for his wife before shambling back into the gloom. Mrs. Gunniver appeared similarly oblivious to the primary edict of the hospitality industry, that of being hospitable, and measured me with squinty little eyes, suspicious of the helmet hooked over my elbow, my weird boots, and the lumpy armoured knees of my stale jeans. I held out my phone, displaying the confirmation email from the booking site, and she recoiled, afeard of the devil's work, presumably, and finally consented to check her list, which consisted of the word Cruise scrawled on a post-it note. We should probably admire her economy. The word was written in pencil over the partially erased traces of several previous names dating back, by the looks of it, to the very dawn of post-it. It It was clear that her post-it note had served her well over the years, and that an entire pad would have been an indecent extravagance. She tucked her precious list back into the pocket of her brown nylon housecoat, and I was led through reception, the front hall, boasting a gratuitous visitor's book askew on a bandy-legged stool, and thence to the lounge bar. The only patron was Mr. Gunniver himself, upper buttocks proudly displayed as he squatted at a card table, staring at the snooker on a boxy old TV, and eating a puddle of food from a faded floral plate. This might have been his Sunday roast. I could identify the carbonized corpse of a potato and the upturned keel of a lamb chop, but it was mostly gravy. Mrs. Gunniver steered the way up the back stairs, along the landing, and beneath the crooked lintel of room three, reciting the house rules with thin-lipped malice, and inventing a few on the fly to accommodate my particular idiosyncrasies. "'Don't wash your helmet in the sink,' she instructed as she exited, closing the door behind her, and attempting to convince it to at least try and fit within the asymmetric frame. I have quickly grown accustomed to the horrifying game of toilet seat roulette peculiar to shithole little hotels with communal bathrooms. If the seat is already warm when you sit down, you lose. In this regard, the sea view was a relief in that no other guest had either arrived or survived the night since decimalisation. The slimy tiles and rusty pipes of the crookback gable-end kazi were all mine. I showered in the available drizzle of tepid water, working hard to scrub the road off, then stood at the sink, looking out through the scalene quadrilateral window at some old trees and a bit of a field. Sunday is a terrible day. The is different and the shops are both busy and less open, which makes no bloody sense. Most people work Monday to Friday. If you have to have an annoying day, stick it in the middle of that somewhere where nobody will notice. It seems cruel to make us work all week and then deny us the right to buy cornflakes after 4pm when we've actually got a bit of time on our hands. And for what? Christianity? What are the Anglicans going to do if we bulldoze this infuriating anachronism? Deliver a bad-tempered sermon to the seven people who've got nothing better to do than turn up for Sunday service, apart from when the weather's nice and the garden needs a bit of work? My wife had few faults, and none that weren't overshadowed by her warmth, intelligence, and boobs. To her credit, she never, not once in her life, cooked a Sunday roast, and so, being a forward-thinking gentleman, neither did I. We both grew up within the mindless conventions of the church calendar—pancake day, eggs at Easter, the wintry corpulence of Christmas, and, of course, the stultifying obligation which was the sit-down family meal on the Sabbath— None of these things were rooted in faith for our families. They were just habits born of lethargy. Sally's axiom, which I adopted and echoed, was that a habit is a failure of innovation. That might not be entirely true. Picking your nose is a habit, but what would you come to if you were required to choose something else to pick? Our Sundays were busy days, deliberately indifferent to the habits we'd failed to inherit. They were spent working, talking, trying something new, and nauseating that we'd never repeat, such as paragliding. In the evenings we'd stare, glassy-eyed and cretinous, at esoteric movies we thought we should watch, but didn't understand, and mostly just enjoyed for the nudity. On one occasion we challenged ourselves to an all-day shag, but felt queasy by mid-morning and had to go for a walk. When our daughter arrived, exquisite and pink and fascinating, Sunday became busier still, evolving over the years from hours spent crawling and tickling to ice-skating, horseback riding and vomitous days out on roller coasters. I'm entirely happy to admit that snobbery was a major factor in our borderline pretentious dismissal of convention, but for the purposes of this, I'd like to insinuate a sense that we needed to make the most of the time we had together. Isn't that the bitter essence of tragedy? Its foreshadowed inevitability. In fairness, there wasn't any such prescience. We were just smug and sadly ignorant, of the blossoming malignancy that would kill my Sally at the age of forty three. The promised Wi-Fi at Mrs. Gunniver's perfectly Dickensian flop house was nearly as elusive as the sea, although I did catch a glimpse of it just after midnight, long enough to spend a few minutes googling John Hardle. I've heard numerous optimistic fuckwits exclaim that every single person on the planet has a place on the web and that we can now connect with anybody, anywhere, via the mystical gobbledygook of the hypertext transfer protocol. Most of the fuckwits appear to be at the juvenile end of Generation X and seem to think that anybody is a synonym for my mum. How many times have we heard some post-teen, self-proclaimed tech savant marvelling at their own achievement of introducing their nan to Facebook? Your nan fought Hitler, you prick. You think she can't update the status of her dahlias on a stupid website? Computers make life piss-easy, and anyone who thinks they're clever for knowing how to use their laptop should try ordering curtains without one like we used to fucking nightmare. So far I haven't found anyone I went to university with online. That strikes me as weird, although less so when taking into account the fact that I can only remember six people from my period of undergraduate discomfiture, and of those I'm fuzzy on at least three surnames. But for there to be literally nothing, or if there was something for it to be buried so deep up Google that I can't be bothered to scroll that far, is unsettling. They seemed like such a big deal at the time, to the extent that I slightly had sex with one of them, and yet they've subsequently done nothing sufficiently noteworthy to place them at the accessible end of this, oh, so bloody marvellous web of wonders." John Hardle might never have existed for all the impact he appears to have made on the world, but he most definitely spent three years torturing me with his abysmal CD collection, and I'm firmly of the belief that he was at least witness to, if not a conspirator in, the death of Patrick Byrne. Running Backwards was written by Nick Forshaw and performed by Stuart Organ. Direction was by Alex Cazalet and the producer was Steve Manley. It was a Barefoot Ape production. If you're enjoying the series, we'd really appreciate it if you could leave a rating and a review and tell your friends. And if you'd like to support the show, please visit runningbackwards.co.uk.